Welcome to Presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents, presented by the Ann Arbor District Library. I'm Al Scherzma. In our last three episodes, we had older women threatened with murder, one of which succeeded, unfortunately. Now we have an older man, but he's not threatened with murder. He's already murdered, but he's also our main character. So how does that work? Some of you probably remember Heaven Can Wait, a 1978 film starring Warren Beatty as Los Angeles Rams quarterback Joe Pendleton, Buck Henry as the escort, and James Mason as Mr. Jordan. I'm not supposed to be here. But you are here. Well, you guys made a mistake. This is insupportable. You're talking to Mr. Jordan. Well, anybody can make a mistake. Mr. Jordan, we do the takeoff for this. Yes, I have the situation in hand. Joe, if you don't take your place, the others won't be able to complete their journey. Do you think that's fair? I'm not supposed to be fair. If this is really heaven, you're supposed to be fair. I didn't make any mistake. This is not heaven. This is a way station, and there is no mistake. I want to check out on Joseph Pendleton. When is he due to arrive at this way station? Pendleton Joseph, due to arrive 10.17 a.m., March 20th of the year 2025. Sir, I really can't believe it. I, I took him out of. I, I took him out just before the accident. There's no you way that car could have messed what? it. It's not possible. You're not supposed to take him out before. You're supposed to wait for the outcome. Yes, sir. I know, but I was so sure, and and besides, it looked like it was going to be so painful. Wait a minute. Are you saying? Is this your first assignment as an escort? Yes, sir. Haven't you learned the rules of probability and outcome? Aren't you aware that every question of life and death remains a probability until the outcome? Hey, so he jumped the gun. Anybody could have done that. Just put me back where you found me and we'll forget the whole thing, huh? This man must be put back into his body at once. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Mr. Jordan. Hey, I'll see you in about 50 years. Heaven Can Wait is a remake of the 1941 film Here Comes Mr. Jordan with Robert Montgomery as boxer Joe Pendleton, Edward Everett Horton as messenger number 7013, and Claude Rains as Mr. Jordan. Pendleton, Pendleton. I can't be on any list. Quiet, please. No, the way I feel, somebody's got their wires crossed. Somebody's made a mistake. A mistake? <laughs> Utterly fantastic. What did you do? Your occupation? Oh, musician? No, no, it's just a hobby, like flying. I'm Joe Pendleton. The flying pug, they call me. You know, pug. I'm a prize fighter. You were a prize fighter. There's no Pendleton Joseph listed. What did I tell you? Oh, it can't be possible. There must be some explanation. I, I hope there is, for your sake. I'll see if he's on any newer listings. He's just got to be, sir. What do you mean, I got to be? If I ain't on any list, I ain't on any list. Mr. Sloan, contact the registrar's office. Will you ask them for everything they have on Pendleton Joseph? Yes, sir. Mr. Jordan, sir. On Pendleton Joseph, the official record says both his parents are happily withdrawn and awaiting his arrival. Joseph is scheduled to join them the morning of May 11th, 1991. 1991? That's 50 years from now. What did I tell you? It seems you were a little premature. 50 years to go yet? You certainly pulled a boner this time. Mr. Pendleton, I feel I owe you an apology. Well, I tell the world you do. Well, never mind. We all make mistakes. There's no harm done. Just forget about it and take me back. Take you back? Naturally, take him back. 
Return him to the body out of which you so indiscreetly snatched him. This turns out to be a problem because Joe Pendleton, in both films, has been cremated. In between those two versions comes our episode, Who Done It? And we don't have to worry about cremation here because our main murdered character is allowed to go back to Earth 24 hours before he's killed to find out who done it. The episode is based on a short story by C.B. Guilford, which is also called Heaven Can Wait. Neither the story nor the 1978 film is associated with the 1943 film Heaven Can Wait, which starred Gene Tierney and Don Amici. We'll get to C.B. Guilford and his short story a little bit later. But for now, here's Hitch. He is standing behind a desk, banging a gavel. And the banging begins even as the camera pans from the title card over to Hitch standing there. Quiet, please. Good evening, fellow necromaniacs. I'm glad so many of you could come. I should explain that the word has nothing to do with necking. I'm awfully sorry I haven't time to explain it now. You'll just have to look it up in the dictionary. As you know, we are not allowed to present our play unless we have a quorum. Tonight we are concerned with those three little words, who done it. When our story opens, the more sordid details are safely out of the way. For the hero of tonight's Grand Guignol is already quite dead. I don't have time to explain what necromaniacs means either, because I'm too busy filling in the rest of Hitch's intro, which is not on my DVD. But before we get to that portion of our meeting, I believe we have some old business to discuss. So here's Who Done It? First broadcast on March 25, 1956 starring John Williams. Teleplay by Francis Cockrell and Marion Cockrell, based on the story by C.B. Guilford, and directed by Francis Cockrell. We've encountered Francis and Marion Cockrell as teleplay writers before, but this is the only time the husband and wife become a writing team for the series. This is Francis's seventh teleplay after Revenge, Breakdown, The Case of Mr. Pelham, A Bullet for Baldwin, You Got to Have Luck, and Back for Christmas. He has 12 more. His next is The Gentleman from America, episode 31. And this is Marion Cockrell's fourth teleplay after Into Thin Air, Santa Claus and the Tenth Avenue Kid, and our last episode, There Was an Old Woman. She has seven more, with her next being Wet Saturday, episode one of season two. So Marion writes a Hitchcock-directed episode after Francis wrote the first four. And speaking of directing, this is Francis's first directing job on the series. He does a solid workmanlike job, with nothing really standing out. He has one more directed episode, the Rose Garden, episode 12 of season two, which also stars John Williams and has a teleplay written by Marion Cockrell. I've discussed both Francis and Marion before, so I'm not going to discuss them again. But I do want to read this little tidbit from the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion by Martin Grahams Jr. and Patrick Wickstrom. 
They say that Francis and Marion Cockrell co-wrote the story Dark Waters, a film Joan Harrison produced years before Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Both Francis and Marion became staff writers for the series, especially during the program's first three years, at the request of Joan Harrison. There's quite a change from our usual music with the title card to the music that begins this episode. So it sounds like this is heaven, and it looks a little bit like it too, though it mostly seems like it's built to look like it's a stage set. A woman walks up to double doors. It's only after she gets to the doors that smoke comes out from under the door or somewhere around the door. But since this is heaven, it's probably not smoke. It's more likely wisps of cloud. Dry ice has been let loose, I think. The doors open without her touching them, and she walks in to find a white-haired man sitting behind a desk in a chair with cherubs carved on it and fondling a feather. Mr. Alexander Penn Arlington has arrived. Thank you, my dear. Mr. Arlington, we are very happy to have you with us. Thank you. Goodbye, Alexander. Goodbye. I love how these songs' lyrics change to Welcome Alexander, giving you this feeling that music permeates all of heaven. And it appears to be personalized for each angel. It is a soundtrack that not only exists in heaven, but when we're touched by heaven. As when Wilfred calls Alexander on the phone when Alexander is back on earth. With its commentary in song, it reminds me of the welcoming song to the Emerald City from The Wizard of Oz. Alexander comes floating in on a cloud, wearing a white robe and holding a harp. He has two small angel's wings that are clearly just cut out of construction paper. So again, we have sort of a double vision here. We're trying to buy into the notion that this is heaven, but we keep getting reminded that it's artificial. As the woman who introduced Alexander leaves, a boy enters with a huge book, which he places on the man's desk, and the man introduces himself. Alexandra, my name is Wilfred. We use only first names here. I am your recording angel. Now, if Wilfred's voice sounds familiar, it may be because we've seen him before. In fact, we've seen all three of these actors before, not counting the uncredited boy who brings in the book. Alexander is played by our lead, John Williams. This is his third of ten episodes, or as the Hitch 20 Extra clip about him puts it, Williams appeared in 10 episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, an acting feat matched only by Hitchcock's own daughter. We've seen him before in The Long Shot, and of course, just a few episodes ago in Back for Christmas. His next, like Marion Cockrell's and Hitchcock's, is Wet Saturday, episode one of season two. The angel who introduces Alexander to Wilfred 
was played by Ruta Lee. This is her second and last appearance. We saw her before in The Cheney Vase, episode 13. And since we saw her last, Ruta has had another birthday and is, as of this recording, 85 years old. And Wilfred is Alan Napier. He is in six total Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes and two Alfred Hitchcock Hour episodes. This is his second. His first was Into Thin Air, episode five. And his next is I Killed the Count, part one, along with John Williams, episode 25 of season two. Alexander looks around at all of the bookshelves resting on clouds behind Doric columns filled with these immense books and is surprised that there are so many people. But the truth is, these books are just Arlington's. And not only that, but... These are the Arlington's from Alexander to Arabella. Just a fraction of the Arlington's, not even all the A's. Alexander's reaction to this is... Good heaven, uh, gracious which I think might be the only gag of that sort in this episode, as opposed to the play by C.B. Guilford, which uses such bits as, How devilish! Shh, Alexander! What do you mean, shh? That word devilish. Please don't use it here. Did I just say the play by C.B. Guilford? Well, we'll get to that a little bit later, too. Alexander asks if he can get off of his cloud. Insert your own Rolling Stones clip here if you'd like and get rid of his harp. He strums his harp nonchalantly and does a double take when it comes out with a sound. I neglected to prepare myself on the harp. My harp was music. This also reminds me of The Wizard of Oz, that moment where the Tin Man snaps his fingers and gets a sound that he doesn't expect. Let her try and make a beehive out of me. I assume this is just me and not Francis Cockrell as director. But if it is Francis Cockrell as director... He is providing us with a subliminal connection between another story where someone journeys to a magical land and then wants to come home again. Wilfred tells him he can dispense with the cloud and the harp. It's just what people expect, that's all. So the artificiality is not just the television episode that we're viewing. The artificiality occurs in heaven as well. It's what people expect. Even the wings, which bother Alexander when he sits down are artificial and unnecessary. As Wilfred puts it, You'll find those very helpful when you first begin to fly. Later, you won't need them. And at last, they get down to business. I see you're a mystery writer. Yes, yes, rather a well-known one, as a matter of fact. Yes, I see. Hmm. Age at time of death, 52. Cause of death, murder. Murder? I beg your pardon. But you said murder? Ah, yes. Didn't you know? Oh, but that's impossible. I died of a heart attack. I think. Yes, I was asleep, and a stabbing pain woke me. Yes, that would follow. You were stabbed in the back while asleep at your desk, with an ivory-handled dagger. With an ivory? Why, that's my letter opener. But who, who did it? That information isn't included here. You see, this is only your life. Well, that won't do. He's a mystery writer, for God's sakes. He's created solutions for tons of murders. He has to know who murdered him. Don't you realize that as Slade Sanders, I wrote over 75 mystery novels, printed in a dozen languages and made into pictures, plays, everything? Now I'm murdered and I don't even know who did it. It's preposterous. How could I possibly be happy? Oh, but you must be. Happiness here as well. It's, it's obligatory. I'm miserable. Well, that puts Wilfred in a bind. 
So he twists the rules and proposes something a little bit out of the ordinary. Given the last day of your life to live over again, do you think you could uncover your murderer? Why, unquestionably. But is that possible? As an archangel, I have authority to make uh, certain adjustments in time. Time is quite flexible, you understand, not like your earthly experience with it. We would simply repeat one segment. As I say, it's most irregular, but uh, if it would make you happy... Oh, of course, it's most thoughtful of you, but uh, would it be repeated exactly? As to the final result, yes. Details would vary. Would others be aware of this uh, repetition? Oh, no. It won't even seem familiar to you. You'll merely know that you're going to be killed at midnight. Of course, you could go through with the murder again, but remain awake this time. That should surely reveal the... Oh, no. Well, that won't be necessary, I assure you. You'll probably be most uncomfortable. Up to within half an hour of the foul deed will be quite sufficient, thank you. Shall we make it five minutes, just to be on the safe side? Well, very well. Well, I shall have the solution long before that, of course. After all, it's my profession. All right. We make a small erasure here. So Francis and Marion have laid out the ground rules for us, and as Wilfred uses his feather to alter the great book, Alexander finds himself waking up in bed with a cup of coffee laid right under his nose by his butler, Horace. Good morning, Horace. Good morning, boss. What time is it? 12 o'clock, same old time. Mrs. Arlington around? Oh, no, she go riding. Alone? Oh, no with Mr. Benson. A couple of things here. First of all, Alexander doesn't wake up until noon. As Horace puts it, Same old time. So he's a late sleeper, but that only gives him 12 hours to solve the mystery. And secondly, his wife is out with some other man. That can't be good. Horace is played by Rudy Robles. He was born Pastor Luvioso Robles and he's one of the first Filipino actors to appear in Hollywood films. According to the story, Samuel Goldwyn discovered him while he was working as a bellhop at the Beverly Hills Hotel, and he gave him the screen name Rudy Robles. Now, during World War II, Rudy was in the U.S. Army and served in Australia, New Guinea, and the Philippines with the 1st Filipino Infantry Regiment. He rose to the rank of 1st Sergeant. And after the war, he was commissioned a second lieutenant in the Army Civil Affairs, where he contracted Filipino entertainers for the U.S. military. Now, he's in several Hollywood films in the 40s and early 50s. Nocturne, Singapore, Umu Umu the Shark God, and South of Pango Pango. You have used the white man's cover to bring them out here, but they will not dive against Kahanish Tapu. How many times have I told you that Kahani said it was all right before he left? Kahani did not tell me. You're not calling me a liar, are you? We will not die until Kahani tells us. It was quite different when you wanted our presence. Ono was not dead then, and the others did not have their bodies twisted or their eardrums burst. I fixed them up all right, didn't I? What more do they want? They still cannot hear the wind in the palms or the voices of the women. <laughs> Mighty pretty. Poetry, eh? And because it was Hollywood in the 40s and 50s, he mostly played elevator boys, servants, butlers, and South Pacific Islanders. Later, Rudy returned to the Philippines, where he raised a family and started to produce, direct, and star in his own films. 
but none of those films are listed in his IMDb bio. This, his only appearance in Alfred Hitchcock Presents, is actually one of his last listed appearances. And Rudy Robles died in 1970 at the age of 64. Upon awakening, Alexander tells himself that it was all a dream, but he is soon dispelled of that notion. Hello? It was no dream, Alexander. Huh? What? Well, who's this? Wilfred. Oh, but, but where are you calling from? Isn't that rather a silly question? <laughs> yes, uh, yes, I suppose it was, but... I'm sure that this bit of a supernatural figure stepping in immediately to remind a character that it is not a dream has probably appeared before this, but I can't think of a good example. I can think of an example that takes place after this, from 1970's Scrooge, with Albert Finney as Ebenezer Scrooge and Alec Guinness as the ghost of Marley. It was a dream. <laughs> yes, that's what it was. A dream. It's not a dream, Ebenezer. Horace exits, and Talbot, or Talbot, as Alexander calls him, enters. He's Alexander's secretary, and I think I'm going to continue to call him Talbot, in spite of Alexander's pronunciation. Good morning, sir. Morning, Talbot. This is from your publishers. I thought you'd want to see it right away. Read it. Dear Alex, we have all read Murder of a Mannequin, and to be candid, we're all disappointed. I'll be out tomorrow to talk this over with you, but frankly, we wonder if you haven't been working too hard, old boy. Could the well be running dry? Maybe if you took a long rest to let it fill up again, this yarn could be reworked. Of all the idiotic drivel, let the well fill up. Never mind, don't read anymore. If Talbot is familiar, that's because he is played by Philip Coolidge, whom we just saw two episodes ago in The Perfect Murder. He is in six Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes and one Alfred Hitchcock Hour episode. His next is Decoy, episode 37. And he, as Talbot, has a plan. You can go ahead and take the rest, as I suggest you know, without stopping the Slade Saunders books. I could do them. You could. You could write my books in my style. That's quite the most egotistical and preposterous statement of my experience. Why I continue to employ such an idiot is beyond me. I'll run along now, Torbert, while my better nature still has the upper hand. It's really not so very preposterous when you stop to think how much I've contributed to the last four or five. Not only plot, you know, but an awful lot of rewriting. Well, have you really? That's obviously what's wrong with them. We shall correct that here and now. You're fired, Torbert. Calculate your salary to include today. And fetch me the check to sign and get out. And I mean move out of the house today, too. Is that clear? Yes, that is perfectly clear. So now we realize for the first time that Alexander is not a particularly nice guy. And we've also found our first suspect to be his killer. In fact, Alexander thinks he's found the killer. Uh, tell me, Torbert. When Fenton comes down tomorrow, if something happened to me in the meantime, a fatal accident, say, do you think he'd let you continue with the Slade Saunders book? Certainly. He'd be a fool if he didn't. Well, I tabbed you quickly enough, I must say. But let me tell you, Talbot, it'll do you no good. You can never swing it. 
The books, I mean. What are you talking about? Uh, never mind. Goodbye, Torbert. Very proud of himself, Alexander starts to take a spoonful of tonic, and then he realizes he doesn't need that anymore. He goes down to his office, convinced he's already got the mystery solved, only to find his nephew Vincent there. And Vincent is handling the ivory-handled dagger that Alexander uses as his letter opener. How's your financial situation, Uncle Alex? Much as usual, I should say. I'm in a pretty bad spot myself. Much as usual, I should say. I need 500. If you recall what I said on the last occasion of this sort, consider it repeated. Supplying you with bed and board strikes me as quite sufficient. Well, this is different, Uncle Alex. This is serious. These people won't wait. Oh, poses you quite a problem, doesn't it? You won't let me have it, then? Exactly. I don't see why I'm in your will. I don't see why I shouldn't have some of it now. Why should I have to wait until you kick off? I find your impatience rather unseemly, Vincent. Indeed, I'm beginning to wonder why I left you in my will at all. Simply that you're my only blood relative, I suppose. I guess you'll take me out now. No, it's, uh, it's a little late for that. Well, okay. I wasn't kidding when I said I was serious about this, Uncle Alex. If I don't get the money tonight, I don't even dare leave the house. I may have to do something drastic. Oh? How drastic? I don't know. But whatever happens, it won't be my fault. So now we not only have Philip Coolidge from The Perfect Murder, we have a character who has the same motive as the characters in The Perfect Murder. He needs money right away. And he knows he's in his uncle's will, but he can't wait for his uncle to die. Vincent is Bill Slack, and I can find almost nothing about Bill, except that he was possibly born in 1933. This is his only episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. In fact, he only has 14 credits total on IMDb, and they end in 1956. His only other role after this is in an episode of Combat Sergeant. And the only clip I can find of him is in his role as Patrolman Harris, in an episode of Highway Patrol. Ambulance is on its way. How oh, is it pretty rough? He's still breathing. That's about all I can tell. I was able to stop the bleeding, but he was in awfully hard. Looks like a skull fracture. Anybody notify his wife? Not yet. She's still picking up the kids at school. Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot he was going to take his kids to the circus tonight. Ten to one, the fingerprints on that jack will say Ralph Neal. You stay with Peterson until the ambulance gets here. Right. Go over to Highway 21 and join Carter. He's sitting all alone with nothing but a motor. Right. I hope that Bill Slack is around somewhere, alive and well, at the age of 87. So now we have two suspects, and we're going to have four very shortly, because Alexander's wife Carol and her friend Wally Benson have just walked by outside of Alexander's office window. And when he goes to his door to greet her, he sees the two of them kissing rather passionately. Bye. I'll see you tonight. Right. Goodbye. These two actors, playing Carol and Wally, are also very familiar, but not because we've seen them before in a Hitchcock episode. Carol is played by Amanda Blake, Wally by Jerry Paris, and I'll get into their bios a little bit later. Hello, dear. I think I'd rather have you tell me goodbye. Oh, Alex, don't be stuffy. Everybody kisses everybody today, you know that. Goodbye, oh, I mean, it's only friendly. Well, rather a warm friendship, I should say. Alex, really? You think I was having an affair with Wally? Aren't you? 
Have you any idea how hateful you can be when you put your mind to it, which is all too often? Have you any idea how I might feel to find my wife in the arms of that vacuous, impecunious young nincompoop? Well, just what do you expect when I practically have to see you by appointment? Should I sit alone all day and, and embroider and sigh and wait for you to toss me a word or look as you pass? Oh, so I'm neglecting you now, is that it? Well, aren't you? Well, certainly not to the extent that I intend to share you with Benson or anyone else. So let that be understood here and now. And let Benson also understand that he is no longer persona grata in these precincts. Is that clear? What absolute nonsense. As it happens, he's taking me to the theater tonight. So more evidence that Alex is actually sort of a rat. Not that you can blame him for objecting to his wife having an affair. And you have to admire anyone that can come out with something like vacuous, impecunious young nincompoop off the top of his head. But still, now we have four suspects, and each one of them has a pretty good motive. Here's how Alexander lays it out very succinctly on a piece of paper, listing the suspects and their motive. Talbot, money, fame. Vincent, money, fear. Carol, love, money. Benson, money, love. Everybody. Mm. What a trusting soul I was, to be sure. At first, he thinks there's a situation like this in his book, Murder of a Moneybags. But then he realizes he's mistaken. Because, after all... How can one reconstruct something that hasn't happened? But wait. It's going to happen. Here in this room at midnight, that's definite. So the murderer must be here, obviously. And Carol and Benson can't be back in time. So all I have to do is to wait and see if Talbot comes back. If he doesn't, it's my dear nephew. Of course, how simple. He's wrong, of course. It's not so simple. And this is one of the things I like about this episode. The famed mystery writer is wrong just about right down the line. We dissolve to a shot of a cloudy sky with thunder and lightning. It is quite literally a dark and stormy night. Alexander sits in a chair in the dark, smoking a cigarette. We get a close-up of his watch. It's 11.40 p.m. Then somebody lets themselves in. It's Talbot, and he goes upstairs. So it is Talbot. He hasn't quite got his nerve up yet. But he'll be back. Do I even need to add that Alexander is wrong again? Because five minutes later, he is briefly blinded by headlights coming through the window and Carol and Benson arrive earlier than expected. Oh, really? <laughs> well, darling, we didn't think you'd be up. Well, obviously. You thought I'd be asleep at my desk in the study, I suppose. What? Oh, this is insufferable, absolutely outrageous, of all the inconsiderate. All right, everybody. We'll have everybody. Horace, you needn't think you can thwart me by swarming in at... Hot! Yes, sir? Fetch my nephew. Wake him if you have to, but get him down here right away. A Torba, too. He just went up. 
Yes, sir. And have them come to my study. And hurry, Horace. I'll get to the bottom of this. But at this point, do we really think he will? And so he assembles them all. We get a close-up of a grandfather clock. It says 11.50. He has 10 minutes to go. Actually, he has five minutes to go, since he asked to be removed five minutes before the murder takes place. So there's nothing else to do than to lay it out before all of the suspects. Someone is going to murder me shortly, and I'm certain it's one of you. He misses the one clue he gets here, which is Wally Benson looking startled and then looking over at Carol. Instead, he starts with Vincent. You looked quite promising earlier, my boy. But you certainly seem to have been sound asleep, so I'm trying to eliminate you now. Oh, sure, Uncle Alex. What would I want to kill you for? Well, for a third of my estate, naturally. Sure, I could use the dough, Uncle A. But I wouldn't want to see you knocked off just for that. If I could get it any other way. That seems honest enough. He moves on to Talbot. Just what did you come back for tonight? I forgot something. Oh, I see. What was it? Let me see it. I couldn't find it. Ah, just as I thought. The insane idea that you could write my books has preyed upon your fuzzy little mind until you believe it so strongly you're ready to kill for it, aren't you? Answer me, aren't you? You must be out of your mind. Well, that's not getting him anywhere. So on to Carol and Benson. One hates to think his own wife might... But we must face facts now. And the facts are that you have, for some unaccountable reason, become enamored of this, this outsized amoeba. Another nice line from Marion and Francis. But you know you can't have him without losing me and my money. So murder would solve your problem very well, too, now wouldn't it? Oh, Alex, of all the nonsense. Really? You shouldn't have been home till one, you know. And yet here you are in plenty of time. Why? Tell me that. Because the show was a crashing bore. What else? Yes, it was terrible, really. Oh, yes, yes. Perhaps you've been overlooked. After all, stabbing is hardly a woman's way, is it? Another false assumption on the part of the great mystery writer. And since you're penniless yourself and know you can't have Carol without money, well, I can hardly see her doing her own housekeeping and you, mending her own clothes, dyeing her own hair. Alex! He really is quite accomplished with the insults and the snide remarks. But as my widow, she'd be quite well off, you know. So I put it to you, Benson, that you'd very much like to see me gone dead, wouldn't you, so you could have both Carol and my money? Well, when you put it that way, Alex, uh, I mean, you make it sound so attractive, uh, yes, I guess I would. Well, that's unexpected. Would a murderer actually come out and say that? So Alex is stymied. If only I could extend the time now. Hello. Alexander? Is this... Yes, this is Wilfred. Oh. Would you really like to extend the time, actually go through with it again? Could I? Yes. Would it come off right on time, just as before? The final event would be the same. Well, you have only a few seconds. Yes, I want to do it. Thank you. Who was that? Oh, that was Wilfred, my recording angel. You see, I'm dead. I mean, I was... I, mean, I, I was murdered once before, but I didn't know who did it, and Wilfred has allowed me to come back to find out. Very considerate of him, I think. 
But you see, I still don't know, and he's, he's going to let me go through with it again. But please don't ask me to explain. You wouldn't understand. You certainly wouldn't. I like the way the thunder comes at the same time as the phone ringing. And now the whole story is out there, whether people believe it or not. But there they all are, sitting in his office. No one can commit that murder at midnight without the other people seeing them. Except Wally Benson has an idea. But before we get to that, let's look at the happy couple. Amanda Blake and Jerry Paris. Amanda Blake was born Beverly Louise Neal, and she was a telephone operator for a short time, which helped her hone her diction skills and led to some work on the radio and performances doing dramatic readings at a local women's club in Buffalo, New York. She was signed in the late 40s by MGM, who touted her as the young Greer Garson. But things didn't really work out that way. She is the lead in the film Miss Robin Crusoe. You look like a maid wanting to be courted. I'll have nothing to do with the likes of courting, Master Jonathan. And I say you have a will for it. You had no right to do that, Master Jonathan. I had the man's right if the maid wants him to. No. At first I thought you were different, but you're not. You're like all the others, but you'll not have your way here, sir. I warn you. One more time and I'll have your blood, I will. She had a sizable role, a perhaps star-making role, in the 1950s version of A Star is Born with Judy Garland. But as Rotten Tomatoes says, her role was almost completely excised from the release print. I went searching for her and I could not find her, even though she still has an opening credit in that film. The best I could determine is that she may be the woman on the stage at the Academy Awards when Judy Garland's character gets the Oscar, but we only see her from a distance, and she has no lines. So her career seemed to have stalled at that point. She ended up appearing in such films as High Society, starring the Bowery Boys. But then she had a chance to audition for the television version of Gunsmoke. In a 1971 interview, she said, I knew I had to have the part of Kitty, so I hounded the producer until I got it. And her roommate at the time... Actress Jan Shepard said that Amanda would dress in character to go for her auditions on Gunsmoke. She got the role, of course, and that led to appearing in 569 episodes. With all of those to choose from, let's play her opening lines from her very first appearance in the very first show. You can buy another and come on over. Sure, I'll buy another on you. You want to pay me for these beers now or later? Now. What do you want, Matt? Do you know? Oh, maybe fishing. Like the fish more than I do. It's about what I figured. But at least you could take me along once in a while. Oh, I did take you. Sure. Two or three months ago. I like fishing, Matt. Next time I get a day off, we'll fish. Good. That'll give me plenty of time to get ready. Amanda appeared in 19 of the 20 years of Gunsmoke, from 1955 to 1974. After Gunsmoke, she went into semi-retirement in Phoenix, Arizona, and mostly devoted herself to animals. She was known during her time in Gunsmoke 
for bringing her pet lion to the set. So she created an animal compound at her home in which she and her husband at the time, Frank Gilbert, ran an experimental breeding program for cheetahs. They were among the first to breed cheetahs successfully in captivity. In the 70s, she helped form the Arizona Animal Welfare League, and she helped finance the startup of the Performing Animal Welfare Society. In 1997, the Amanda Blake Memorial Wildlife Refuge opened at Rancho Seco Park in Herald, California. It's a refuge that provides sanctuary for free-ranging African wildlife. Now, Amanda was a heavy cigarette smoker, and she had surgery for oral cancer in 1977. She died in 1989 at the age of 60, but not from the cancer. There's a bit of controversy around her death, actually. She died of liver failure brought on by viral hepatitis, officially, but her doctor claimed that she'd actually died of AIDS. Now, it turns out that her fifth husband, Austin, Texas developer Mark Spaeth, died four years before her of AIDS. He had claimed that she had infected him after returning from a trip to Africa, but he was apparently known to be bisexual, and Amanda's friends were quick to point out that she was neither promiscuous nor a drug user. This is Amanda Blake's only episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Jerry Paris was born William Gerald Paris, and he served in the Navy during World War II. Afterwards, he attended New York University and was in the actor's studio. After graduation, he moved to Los Angeles, and he studied acting at the Actors Lab in Hollywood. Now, he's in a number of films and television programs in the 50s and early 60s. Monkey Business, DOA, Cyrano de Bergerac, Bonzo Goes to College, The Wild One, The Kane Mutiny, and Marty, with recurring roles in television series such as Those Whiting Girls, The Untouchables, Michael Shane, and Steve Canyon. Hello. Like smorgasbord? Love it. Swedish beer? Crazy. Apple pie? Do I? Eight o'clock? That means officer of the day. I mean evening. Unfortunately, there are 24 hours in this kind of day. Tomorrow. Perhaps. Jerry Paris was six feet, one and a half inches tall. And in a 1968 interview with Roger Ebert, which is on rogerebert.com, he said, You ever see a picture called The Flying Missile? I was in it, and Glenn Ford starred. We were on a submarine, and I was looking out of the periscope all the time. Only it would look bad if we had to lower the periscope for Ford after I finished looking out of it. So I spent the whole picture crouched over. He went on to say, My trouble as an actor was twofold. I was too tall, and I wasn't handsome enough. Richard Widmark wanted me in a couple of movies, and they told him I was too tall. I'd make him look short. Widmark said, What the hell, we can dig a hole. And I remember I was Robert Taylor's roommate in D-Day the 6th of June, and I had to sit down all the time. Yeah, I remember the scene where I was leaving and I was supposed to bid him goodbye. The director told me to sit on the bed. What's this, I said. I'm leaving and I'm sitting on the bed? The director says, give him a can of beer or something. He can be drinking a can of beer. And then we cut to him outside the door. And here's one more quote from the Roger Ebert interview. You name it. I was the co-pilot, the best friend, the roommate, the army buddy. In three movies, I was second banana to Bonzo the Monkey. Remember Bonzo? He was the number one monkey in Hollywood. 
bigger even than Cheetah, until he was killed in a tragic fire. Let's see, I was in Bonzo Goes to College and in Monkey Business and another one. Monkey Business also had Marilyn Monroe and Cary Grant, but as I recall, Bonzo got equal billing. Bonzo had a trainer who started to talk as if he were the monkey. Hell, the monkey was making the money. One day, the trainer tells me I have a part in Bonzo's next picture because Bonzo likes me. Can you imagine that? Getting the part because the monkey likes you? By the way, none of those actors were really short. Glenn Ford was 5'11", Richard Widmark was 5'10", and Robert Taylor was 6 feet tall. But Jerry was taller than all of them, something a director would not particularly want to show. All right, so all of that aside, Jerry Paris is mainly known for two things. First, he was Jerry Helper, Rob Petrie's next-door neighbor, on The Dick Van Dyke Show. What uh, I'm going to do for you? You know what? Walter and Jim are waiting outside, and they want you to join and help us do the job that we have to do. Jerry, Gilbert Bester is not ruining his community. Jerry, why did you come over here? Rob made himself quite clear at the meeting last Honey, night. Honey, I can talk for myself. Jerry, why did you come over here? I made myself perfectly clear at the meeting last night. You just said that. I didn't. She did. Look, Jerry, if you think that Rob and I are going to become a part of your vigilante Honey, committee... I can talk for myself. Jerry, if you think we're going to become a part of your... Then you are very much mistaken, very much Jerry, mistaken. and furthermore... Honey, please, and furthermore... And furthermore, you, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. I didn't come here for a lecture. We're well, not Jerry, trying you to give a you a lecture. Stereo yet. <laughs> Jerry, how dare you trespass on a man's property simply because you don't like the looks of his lawn? We don't care what his lawn looks like, but we do care that it's all crabgrass. He happens to like the looks of crabgrass. Then let him grow it inside the house. <laughs> and the weeds won't infect our lawn. Now look, Rob, we're going over there and we're going to kill his crabgrass and nobody's going to stop us. Jerry, that is vandalism. It's not vandalism. We are not going to poison one blade of acceptable grass. You haven't got any right to poison anything ethically, legally, or morally. It's undemocratic. Is it democratic for one guy to allow up 43 lawns? Jerry, look, just because I don't like that button there on your coat. What's wrong with it? Well, I, just, let's just say it offends me, all right? Now, do I have a right to walk up to you and rip it off you? Huh? Do, legally, morally, ethically, do I have any right to walk up and yank... <laughs> a reflex action. Yeah, all right, you can rip up a guy's lawn. He's liable to have a reflex action. to come over and smash a couple of your windows or a couple of noses on your face. Listen, it just happens that some people don't care what happens oh, to our neighbors. Wait a minute. We care very much what now, happens. Second, We're not going to run around look. and act like a bunch of... We care very much what happens. We're not going to run around like, like a bunch of... of, of I don't know. I, I don't know. Well, I'd rather be an I don't know what than a weasel. A oh, weasel. Yeah, a weasel. Come on, let's go, guys. Let's go. While on the Dick Van Dyke Show... He began to ask Carl Reiner for the opportunity to direct some episodes. And that led to the other thing he is best known for, directing some film, but mostly television. Carl Reiner himself said, He did a couple of shows, and we realized he understood our show more than any of the other directors. But Jerry responded, Carl listens to everybody. So few people listen because they're so insecure. The secret of the success of The Van Dyke Show was group effort. Also, I'm nuts. It helps. Carl followed up by saying he really was a kid at heart. He said whatever came to his mind, but he was such a sweet soul that people usually weren't taken aback. Sometimes he was like a bull in a china shop, but he very rarely broke any china. Now, Jerry won an Emmy Award for the 1963-64 season for Outstanding Directorial Achievement 
in comedy for The Dick Van Dyke Show. And in his career, he went on to direct episodes of The Partridge Family, Here's Lucy, Laverne and Shirley, The Ted Knight Show, The Odd Couple, and The Mary Tyler Moore Show. But the thing he was best known for was Happy Days. Sunday, Monday, Happy Days. Tuesday, Wednesday, Happy Days. Thursday, Friday, Happy Days. The weekend comes, my cycle hums. Ready to race to you. These days are all. Of the 255 episodes of the show, Jerry directed 237 of them. And emulating Hitchcock, he appeared in at least one episode, uncredited, of every season. Now, on March 18, 1986, Jerry was hospitalized and doctors discovered he had a brain tumor. He underwent two surgeries, but the doctors were unable to remove the tumor, and he died on March 31st at the age of 60. And according to happydays.fandom.com, in the 1990s sitcom The Nanny, Fran's grandmother, played by Anne Morgan Gilbert, who also played Millie Helper, Jerry's wife, on The Dick Van Dyke Show, shows a picture of Jerry Paris and claims it is her late husband. Jerry Paris is in two total episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. His next and last is The Safe Place, episode 36 of season three. Okay, back to Wally's idea. He moves over toward the light switch as everybody in the room stands. Alex, carrying this foolishness one step farther, there is a way it could happen, you know, right now. If the murderer could kill you without any of the rest of us knowing which one he is, then he'd be safe, wouldn't he? Yes, yes, of course, but obviously that's impossible, so please... Oh, no, no, it isn't. Even Slade Sanders should think of that one, Alex. All I have to do is... And he turns out the light. Mayhem ensues, the office only being lit up occasionally by lightning strikes, and we can see the people milling around. But we can't see who does anything. Benson! And the next thing you know, and it turns out no time has passed at all. When Wilfred first sent Alexander back to Earth, he said, We make a small erasure here. And with Alexander back from Earth, he says, And another small erasure here. And that's that. Of course, Alexander still doesn't know who killed him. But now it doesn't seem to matter so much anymore. You see, nobody seemed at all upset at the idea of my being killed. And now I'm beginning to wonder what sort of person I was. Well, that would also involve the kind of people they were. And after all, none of you were better than human. But then it turns out that Wilfred is a better detective than Alexander. Of course, you do have one clue. Whoever killed you would have to trust Benson implicitly. Be sure he wouldn't turn on the lights again. Of course. They would have to be partners who had already planned to kill me. Carol. So it was Carol. Poor thing. She'll get no good out of it. She's certain to be caught. She's not nearly clever enough. Few are. I say, you're really quite a detective yourself, you know. Very good indeed. Oh, I'm sorry. I must sound dreadfully patronizing. A habit left over from Earth, I suppose. I must have been rather obnoxious, I fear. 
In fact, under the circumstances, how did I get in here at all? Oh, all mystery writers go to heaven, didn't you know? They do? Whatever for? I really don't know. I must remember to ask sometime. Well, that's a bit of a letdown, isn't it? Instead of a rousing conclusion or a nice little twist, we end with Wilfred explaining the murder to Alexander and then finishing off with this little joke about mystery writers going to heaven. I don't know why that last line is in there, except as a boost to mystery writers. I'm also not so sure that Wilfred's deduction is necessarily correct. I mean, just because Wally is the one that turns off the lights doesn't mean that somebody else didn't grab that letter opener and do Alexander in. But of course, somebody did do him in in the original version when he was asleep at his desk, and not everyone was there in his office. So if you look at it that way, Talbot goes upstairs to retrieve whatever he's looking for. He doesn't find it. Vincent is asleep in his bed. There's no reason why either one of those would necessarily come down to the office, except that in the second version, Alexander invites him into the office. So Carol and Wally are pretty much the best suspects. And I think Wilfred actually misses maybe the two actual clues that take place. One of them is that Carol and Wally return early from the theater. They were perhaps setting up an alibi that they are at the theater until after the murder takes place. And secondly, that little moment where Wally looks over at Carol while they're all sitting together in the office. Although that's a moment that wouldn't have taken place in the first version of the murder. Now, to be fair, I don't think the mystery is the point of this story at all. I think the story is a self-discovery. By going back to relive that day, Alexander goes from thinking that no one would want to kill him to realize that a number of people might want to kill him. But more importantly, he goes from feeling like the only victim to realizing that he may have victimized others in his own way. And in that vein, it's a pretty good little story. But it's also a vein, I think, that Francis and Marion Cockrell cooked up on their own, because it isn't really in C.B. Guilford's short story or his play. As I mentioned, the original story was entitled Heaven Can Wait. It appeared in the August 1953 issue of Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine. I have that issue here, and the editor's introduction is worth reading. Winner of a special award, C.B. Guilford is in his early 30s, married, and has one child. During World War II, he spent three years as a B-29 combat navigator, and as a sideline, that's the way Mr. Guilford expressed it, he wrote military citations. A great deal of his prose is therefore buried somewhere in the Pentagon Files. For a living, the author taught theater arts and directed plays for four years at Rockhurst College in Kansas City, and he is now doing the same at St. Louis University. He has an M.A. from Catholic University in Washington, D.C., and a Ph.D. from the University of Denver. He still considers writing an avocation, and he confesses to a second avocation, acting. When Normandy Productions, Inc., a TV film company came to Denver in the summer of 1952 and shot an hour-length version of The Merchant of Venice. It was Mr. Guilford who donned costume and makeup to play the role of Shylock. But as against his established vocations, teaching and directing, Mr. Guilford wonders if he will ever have the courage either to become a full-time writer or a full-time actor. Both roads, he says ruefully, are long and hard. Given the talent, and Mr. Guilford has that, 
the teacher, director, actor, writer has every reason to be hopeful. For along with talent, Mr. Guilford has another quality, bulldog tenacity. Heaven Can Wait won a special award in last year's EQMM contest, but only after the author had the determination and perseverance to submit the story in two previous EQMM contests, listen to our criticisms, rewrite, the Lord knows how many times, and finally submit again with patience and fortitude. We salute you, Mr. Guilford. That intro gives us a pretty good biography of C.B. Guilford up to 1953 and also demonstrates that he was a persistent writer that rewrote until he got it right, or at least until an editor thought he got it right. The CB in C.B. Guilford stands for Charles Bernard, and along with all those other roles that were mentioned in the introduction, he wrote a number of short stories and some novels. He had stories published in 27 issues of Alfred Hitchcock Mystery Magazine, and his stories appear in 45 different Alfred Hitchcock anthologies. The Encyclopedia of Science Fiction says of him, U.S. teacher and scriptwriter and author, sometimes under pseudonyms not used for work of genre interest, whose SF novel, The Liquid Man, features a biologist and a problem in undesired metamorphosis, the nature of which is clear from the title. He was nominated for an Edgar Award for his short story, Frightened Lady, in 1972. And his short stories were the basis of the Night Gallery episode, the Miracle at Camafeo, and the Tales of the Unexpected episode, Air Presumptuous. His stories are the basis for three more Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes and one episode of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour, including Bull in a China Shop, which, in spite of what Carl Reiner said, does not feature Jerry Paris. His next is The Equalizer, episode 19 of season three. And C.B. Guilford died in 2010, at the age of 89. Now, this episode allowed CB to see he was onto a good thing with this story. It is a rather clever idea, and CB took full advantage of that, with the story appearing in the TV series The Unforeseen in 1959, under its original title, Heaven Can Wait. But CB also used Who Done It as a springboard to write his own play version of it, which he called Who Done It. Who and done it, two different words. We'll get to that in a minute. First, let's look at the short story. There are a number of character differences in name and composition. Alexander's wife is named Ariel, described as a creature of light and air, reminding us of Shakespeare's The Tempest. Her lover is Mr. Armbruster, not Benson. Alexander's nephew is Andrew instead of Vincent and he's described as overweight with small piggish eyes. There's a cook named Annie, a maid named Agnes, and the butler doubles as a gardener. His name is Harry, and he's an ex-con who worries that Alexander will reveal to the police some of the stories he's told him, which Alexander has used in his books. The biggest difference between the story and the teleplay is that the recording angel Wilfred is actually the archangel Michael. But all of this is cosmetic, and the story is basically the same until Alexander gets them all together in his office. There he tells them the whole story, but in this case he has a plan, and he holds them all at gunpoint. He says, I'll keep my bargain with Michael, because he was so decent about the whole thing, to the extent of being right here at my desk at midnight. But the murder will not occur. They could not conceal their disappointment. Alexander smiled again. 
After twelve o'clock, he continued, I shall be free of my obligation to the archangel. The murderer will have missed his date with destiny, and I shall live on for years and years. But now that my eyes have been opened in respect to all of you, I shall, of course, not continue to live here. I have my suitcase packed, as you see. I am going away. Then I shall take steps to disinherit you, Ariel, and you, Andrew. As for my career, I have a new book in mind, dealing with this very case. I'm sure such an extraordinary plot will rescue Slade Saunders from the oblivion that threatens him. You'll be on your own, Talbot. As for you, Harry, you yourself have reminded me of my clear duty as a law-abiding citizen. And Alexander smiled once more. The five suspects were silent. The clock above the fireplace fixed the time at seven minutes to twelve. It was old Harry who spoke first. So you're going to keep us all here at the point of a gun, Mr. Arlington. Of course, nobody can stab you with that letter opener if you've got a gun on us. Is that what you call keeping your agreement with the Archangel? It is not my intention, replied Alexander serenely, to hold you at bay with a gun. And to prove his point, he returned the automatic to his pocket. My plan is really much simpler and far less violent. Are you going to tell us? Talbot demanded. Why not? Here I am at the appointed hour and in the appointed place, per agreement. And I have seen to it that all the suspects are here. What can be fairer than that? There's a catch to it, his nephew said. Naturally, Andrew, one of you five is the murderer. Now, murderer, you have two choices. At twelve o'clock, you can do the deed if you wish, here in the light before four witnesses, excluding myself. In that case, you'll surely be apprehended by the police, for I can guarantee that these other scurvy characters will be most anxious to give evidence against you. But you have another choice. You can pass up your chance of murdering me. Since it will be your doing, not mine, that will put me square with Michael, and at one minute past twelve, I will walk out of this house and out of your lives. The phone rang violently. Alexander picked up the receiver and said cordially, "'Hello, sir.' "'Arlington, you're cheating,' said the archangel. "'But I'm not, sir. This is the only way I can find the murderer. "'There are simply no clues beforehand, and I won't be alive after. "'If the murderer decides not to go through with it, you certainly can't blame me.' "'That's very clever, Arlington.' "'Thank you, sir. But not clever enough. "'You forget that the murderer has a date with midnight just as you have, "'so the murderer may have a counter-plan, too.' "'And at that point, Armbruster turns the lights off.' and Alexander is murdered. As I said, he has no moment of self-discovery in the story. When he returns to heaven, Michael says, Have a nice time, Mr. Arlington? I was murdered again. Of course. Who did it? The archangel laughed, a laugh that rang and echoed through the high-vaulted marble room. Why, that's what you went back to Earth to find out. And here you are, Mr. Arlington, asking the same old question. You're not proposing to go through all that a third time, are you? No, thanks, said Alexander wearily, but I still won't be happy here. So Michael gives him the solution, but in the story, there's a few more clues that are a bit better than the episode. Because in the story, Alexander dimly felt the hand which had pushed his head down, exploring the left side pocket of his jacket, removing his handkerchief. The murderer was wiping fingerprints off the knife. And later Michael tells him, if you were the murderer, what reason could you possibly have for reaching into the victim's pocket and using the victim's handkerchief to wipe off your fingerprints? I'd do that, answered Alexander, only if I didn't have a handkerchief of my own. Right, nodded the archangel. And which of your five suspects would be most likely to know that you carried your handkerchief in the left side pocket of your jacket? 
I see what you mean, sir, Alexander perked up. The archangel beamed. Then maybe you'll be happy here after all, Mr. Arlington. Ariel's accomplice was at the light switch, muttered Alexander. She could trust Armbruster not to turn the lights back on till she was finished with the murder. For confirmation, Ariel couldn't have been carrying a handkerchief because there was just no place for one in that low-cut dress she was wearing. And my wife, I presume, would be the most likely to know where I'm accustomed to carrying my handkerchief. Exactly the way I had it figured out, Mr. Arlington. Say, you're a pretty good detective yourself, sir. The archangel looked modest. I've picked up a few tricks here and there, he admitted. It's the company I've been keeping. Company? Didn't I mention that, Mr. Arlington? Dear, dear. If I had, you might never have been dissatisfied in the first place. Well, well, we won't delay any longer. You come in and meet the boys, Mr. Arlington. There's Edgar and Sir Arthur and G.K.C. Edgar and Sir Arthur and G.K.C.? Certainly, Mr. Arlington. Didn't you know that all mystery writers go to heaven? One year after this episode aired, in 1957, as I mentioned, C.B. Guilford published a play, Who Done It? Free copies of it were distributed to various high schools around the country, published by The Playhouse. Here's the blurb they put on the front cover. We don't know of any better way to introduce you to this most popular and successful play than to let you read it yourself. That's why we've sent you, absolutely free and with no obligation on your part, a complete copy of Who Done It. In our opinion, this is one of the most hilarious and effective mystery comedies ever offered for amateur production. This book is worth $1, and it's yours to keep. All we ask is that you read the script. We sincerely believe that one reading will convince you that Who Done It is the one play you just have to do. Over 300 schools have already successfully produced this play. In this version, Alexander is not married. He has a fiancé half his age. Vivian Odell. Her lover is George Brewster, and they have concocted a plan to seduce Alexander so that Vivian can be included into his will. So they're awful crooks right from the beginning. Andrew, the nephew, owes lots of money to a gangster named Lucky Louie. An additional character named Flo Baker is Lucky Louie's mall, and she comes to get $5,000 from Andrew and actually presses Andrew to murder Alexander. Alexander's secretary is now a woman named Miss Jenkins. Harry's still around, as is Annie the cook, only she's also now the maid. And there are two angels, Muriel and Isabel. The biggest problem here is that everybody is rotten. And I mean everybody. Even Michael and the angels aren't all that great. And when it comes to the scene in the office, where Alexander reveals the whole story... None of the suspects have any hesitation to say that, yes, they'd like to kill him. So we get down to this. Andrew, that archangel sounds real mad. I wouldn't like to be in your shoes, Uncle Alex. Alexander, sure he's mad. That shows he's scared because he doesn't know whether he's going to get me back or not. Miss Jenkins, you know, I have a feeling that that archangel is on our side. Vivian, even the archangel wants you to die, Alex. Andrew, we all do. Alexander, with growing panic, thank you for the kind thoughts. Vivian, and you're being absolutely beastly about this, Alex. Andrew, uncle, when it comes time for a man to die, he ought to die. Harry, somebody better think of something pretty quick. Brewster, that's right, we ought to be thinking. Andrew, we could all stab him together, you know, like they stabbed Julius Caesar. 
Then we couldn't squeal on each other. Miss Jenkins. But there's only one letter opener. Vivian. Harry, go to the kitchen and bring knives for everybody. Alexander. Don't you dare, Harry. Remember, I've got a gun. If anybody tries to leave this room, I'll shoot. Harry stays where he is. Miss Jenkins. We could draw lots. That would make it a conspiracy. We'd all be in it together, so we couldn't tell on each other. Alexander. You can't trust anybody in this room, and you all know it. You're all a bunch of scurvy knaves. Andrew. And besides, I ain't very lucky. I ain't going to take a chance in a raffle. Vivian. Harry, why don't you do it? You've got a criminal record anyway. What could you lose? Andrew. Yeah, go on, Harry. Harry. In front of everybody? Suddenly shy. Gee, I'm not used to pulling jobs like this in front of people. Brewster. Disgusted. Well, how would it be if we all hit our eyes? Vivian gets up and paces. Somebody has to do something. Miss Jenkins wringing her hands. Oh, I'm so nervous. This is our big chance. Andrew. This is our last chance. We've got about two minutes. Vivian to Brewster. George, George, think of something. Do something. Brewster snaps his fingers. Maybe I do have an idea. And of course he turns off the lights. And Alexander ends up back in heaven, talking to the angels. Muriel. Didn't you enjoy yourself back on earth? Alexander. Enjoy myself? My dear young lady, I was murdered. Muriel. Well, of course. What did you expect? Michael. With a wink to Muriel and Isabel. I think he expected not to be murdered. Alexander. Well, I might not have been if that lightning hadn't stopped. Michael. We had to do something. We were in a spot too, old man. Alexander. Yes, I suppose you were. I'm sorry about that. My instinct for self-preservation just must have been too strong. Michael. I accept your apology. And now I have news for you. I know who murdered you. Alexander. You do? Michael. Absolutely. Now think a minute. Brewster was the one who turned off the lights, giving the murderer a chance to work in the dark. Now tell me, if you were one of the suspects, would you have trusted Brewster not to turn the lights on again while you were right in the middle of doing the stabbing? Alexander. I certainly wouldn't have trusted him unless... unless I were... Vivian! Michael. Brilliant deduction, Alexander. They were the only two who could have worked as a team. Brewster at the lights and Vivian. Alexander. Vivian murdered me! A look of terrible rage comes over his face. Michael. Come now, Alexander. You're in heaven now. Mustn't have any mean thoughts toward anybody. He passes a hand before Alexander's face in a sort of magical gesture. Alexander's face suddenly smiles. Alexander. No mean thoughts. What do I care about Vivian? Michael. Are you happy now, Alexander? That's the important thing. Are you happy? Alexander. Why, of course I'm happy. I'm in heaven, aren't I? Michael. Good. Now you go right through that door, Alexander. You get measured for your wings in there. The angels watch Alexander as he disappears into the wings. When he is gone, Michael heaves a tremendous sigh of relief. All three angels mop their brows with their voluminous sleeves. Muriel. Things were getting pretty hot for up here, weren't they? The curtain falls. They exit. Now, it seems to me that having written the short story and having no doubt watched the television episode, C.B. Guilford has combined them together and thrown out the best of each. 
Gone are the further clues which make the mystery more interesting from the short story, and gone is the self-discovery that Alexander has in the television episode. In this case, his happiness is actually implanted in him by Michael. Any subtlety that the other versions had is missing. Here, everyone wants to kill Alexander so badly they openly discuss it. Not that we feel for Alexander. He's more rotten in the play than he is anywhere else. To be fair, C.B. has written this version as a much broader comedy. And maybe it plays funny on stage, but it doesn't read funny. And at least he's gotten rid of that ending with the mystery writers going to heaven. But still, having not seen the version on the unforeseen, I still suspect that this play version is the worst of the bunch. And taken all in all, I guess I would say, in spite of its faults, that the Alfred Hitchcock Presents episode is the best of them. So much for who done it, but you're not quite rid of me yet. First, the fourth story, written by Hitchcock and published in The Telegraph, and then another film from his title designer days. This story, first published in September 1920, and reprinted by Patrick McGilligan in his book, Alfred Hitchcock, A Life in Darkness and Light, is entitled, And There Was No Rainbow. Robert Sherwood was fed up. Of that fact, there was not the least doubt. Time hung heavily, for he had exhausted his source of amusement and had returned from whence he had started, the club. He did not know what to do next. Everything seemed so monotonous. How had he looked forward to these few days' rest? And now, well, there it was. He was fed right up. While he was thus engaged in reviewing his present circumstances, in strolled his pal Jim. Now, Jim was married, so he was in a position to sympathize with him. Although, mind you, Jim's life contract had not been the ultra-modern kind, where you repent and eventually divorce at leisure. It simply happened that Jim had struck lucky, and he was content. Hello, Bob, old fruit. Hello, Jim. You don't look in the pink. Anything wrong? Oh, I'm tired and fed up. And Bob unfolded his little drama. Why, I know the solution. What you want is a girl. A girl? Yes, a nice young lady. Someone with whom you can share all your little joys and sorrows and money. Bob shook his head. No, that's no good. I'm not built that way. Besides, I don't know any girls. Listen to me. All you have to do is to go to one of the suburbs, say Fulham, and keep your eyes open around the smart houses. When you have struck your fancy, just go up and, oh, well, you know what to say. Simply pass the time of day, etc. Bob got up. I'll think about it. Can't do any harm. And in any case, it'll pass an hour. Good man, exclaimed Jim. Let me know how you get on. It was pouring heavily, and in consequence, Bob swore. If he had any special antipathy, it surely was relations, all of the old and crusty sort, and duty visits. The latter was a demand of the present occasion, and he made haste to get the ordeal over. But the rain teemed down heavily, and being without an umbrella, he slipped into a nearby doorway. Some minutes had passed without any abatement of the rain, when a cloaked figure made its way up the garden path towards the refugee. "'Oh!' exclaimed the newcomer, startled. "'Excuse me,' said Bob." "'but I am sheltering from the rain. "'I hope you don't mind.' "'Not at all,' she replied, "'inserting her key in the lock. "'Oh, dear,' she cried. "'I can't get the key to turn.' "'May I try?' volunteered Robert. "'Receiving assent, he continued the good work, "'but was equally unsuccessful. 
The only thing to do is to force the door, he said. Oh, is there no other way? I'm afraid that's the only solution. I find that one of the wards of the key has been broken off. You must have dropped it. I did, this afternoon, after I had closed the door. Well, as force is the only remedy, do you mind trying? A few heaves with his shoulder proved sufficient to send the door flying open. Thank you so much, he said. In return for your kindness, may I ask you to come in and sit down until the rain ceases? Bob hesitated for a moment. Then he remembered Jim's advice, and assented with thanks. Once inside, he lost no time in getting acquainted, and the end of thirty minutes saw the pair intensely interested in each other. Brainy man, Jim, thought Bob, to put me on a stunt like this. I shall never be able to thank him enough. He'll be glad to hear of my progress. At the end of an hour, he was all but engaged. Then came the sound of footsteps up the path. My husband, she gasped. What shall I do? You must get out of the window, hide, or do something, quick. Oh, hell, groaned poor Romeo. Here's a go. To her, he said quickly, switch out the light and I'll slip out of the door when he enters. She sprang to the switch and the room was plunged into darkness. But almost simultaneously, her husband opened the door and turned on the light, finding Bob at his feet, ready to escape. Bob! Jim! You damn fool, he shouted. I said Fulham, not Peckham! The fourth film for which Hitchcock was title card designer was The Mystery Road. It, like the previous three films, is lost, and I can't find too much about it, except for these two reviews published on the Hitchcock Zone. This one is from The Guardian. The only thing that misfires in The Mystery Road is the sermonette, set out in an introductory caption. The story is certainly complex, but this preliminary moralizing on the road of life and love tends only to confuse, as well as being quite unnecessary. If it has been inserted to throw one off the scent and so retain a dramatic climax, it possibly succeeds. But even so, it is wholly superfluous. For once the unfolding of Gerald's indiscretions is fairly begun, he would be a bold seer who would prophesy how all was to end. Gerald, played by Mr. David Powell, first has a rather purple love affair on the cliffs overlooking Beachy Head Lighthouse, all of which he confesses when he proposes to and is accepted by Lady Susan, played by Miss Mary Glynn. Traveling to Nice, however, he lays the foundations of a fresh romance with a French maiden. There follows a further violent interlude with the Eastbourne lady, played by Miss Ruby Miller, who is now a Riviera butterfly. And then, his last check written out to meet gaming losses, Gerald resists a suicidal impulse, clasps his French protégé to a crumpled dress shirt, and proclaims that happiness and respectability are his at last. But what of the moral? By all the recognized rules of the game, and keeping that sermonette in mind, Lady Susan surely should have saved Gerald from himself in that moonlit garden, with the lights of Monte Carlo twinkling wickedly in the distance. Her virtue and constancy are, however, not wholly unrewarded. She gets a titled husband who loses neither purse to the Baccarat sharks, nor heart to the demi-monde. The production is lavish to a degree and a tribute to British kinematography, the scenes in the Grand Café Mediterranean and on the Promenade des Anglais are riotously luxurious, while there is a quieter, more healthy charm in the roadside incidents during the motor journey through the Rhone Valley. The typical estaminet, that's a French café that sells alcohol, the gesticulative aubergiste, that's the innkeeper, 
and the picturesque, humdrum, rather squalid French village life. And then there's this short piece from Picture Goer. A very mediocre production, made in England with David Powell as the star. Its theme is the old one of love of woman and a struggle with men. In the cast are Nadia Ostorska, Pardo Woodman, Mary Glynn, Ruby Miller, Percy Standing, Louis Gilbert, Irene Tripod, Lionel Darragon, Arthur Cullen, R. Judd Green, and Ralph Forster. Sex attraction is the basis of the story, which is only a grotesque caricature of E. Phillips Oppenheim's original novel. It was sometime during these early films that Hitchcock, as he tells Truffaut, eventually went to work in the studio. In the, I suppose you would call it the uh, editorial department which consisted of uh, two American gentlemen who were, who were writers by reputation. And um, the head of the department, you see, in those days they didn't have producers. They had the director who would... Uh, then have as his advisor the editorial department. department Under the head of the editorial department would be the writers. When the film was finished, it would come back to the editor, head of the editorial department, who would then uh, write the titles or rewrite them from the original script because in those days by the use of titles narrative and spoken whole sections of the story could be changed because the actor went then the title came on the screen and they could put whatever words they liked in his mouth. Et pouvait mettre n'importe quelle parole dans sa bouche. Oui, bien sûr. Um, it has been known for this process to save a bad film. Par ce procédé, il a été puissant. Il a été fait pas mal de temps de sauver un mauvais film. Because uh, uh, there was one film I remember was a very bad film. A drama. So they put comedy titles all the way through it. Alors pour sauver, ils ont mis des titres de comédie à travers tout le film. Big success. Un très grand succès. Because it became satirical. Parce que c'est devenu un satire. On pouvait même peut-être se servir des intertitres pour couper ce qui était mauvais dans le film si un acteur était très mauvais. And perhaps you might use also titles to cut if an actor was very bad. You could cut what was bad out of a picture by the use of by substituting titles. More than that, you could take the end of the picture and put it up in the beginning. Vous pouvez même prendre la fin du film et le mettre au début. Anything. As for Hitch's comments at the end of this episode. It appears that my DVD, again, has the European version without the commercial break. So I'm going to play that in its entirety. Then I'll play it again, at least the part that should be in the American version with the commercial break. And I'll fill in the rest myself. And remember, the episode ended with Wilfred revealing that all mystery writers go to heaven. Here's Hitch. Well, why they would go to heaven is certainly a mystery to me. After she had assisted her husband out of this veil of tears, 
Mrs. Arlington sought solace in a quick marriage to Mr. Benson, and they lived happily ever after, he in the state penitentiary and she at the women's detention home, where she found a very nice job in the mailroom. Vincent, of course, became filthy rich, which reminds me that we were to hear from the Committee on Ways and Means. However, they were unable to attend. They didn't have the money for the bus fare, in which case I declare this meeting adjourned. And here it is again, as it should be. Well, why they would go to heaven is certainly a mystery to me. After she had assisted her husband out of this veil of tears, Mrs. Arlington sought solace in a quick marriage to Mr. Benson, and they lived happily ever after. He in the state penitentiary, and she at the women's detention home, where she found a very nice job in the mailroom. Vincent, of course, became filthy rich. And speaking of money, since we have incurred a great deal of expense during the conduct of this meeting, I think it is high time we heard from the Committee on Ways and Means, after which this forum will again come to order. Alfred Hitchcock presents Season 1, Heaven Can Wait, Here Comes Mr. Jordan, The Wizard of Oz, Scrooge, and The Dick Van Dyke Show Season 4 are all available at the Ann Arbor District Library. The Hitch 20 Extra segment, the clip from Miss Robin Crusoe, the Steve Canyon episode, the Happy Days theme, the Highway Patrol episode, South of Pango Pango, and the Hitchcock Truffaut clip are all available online. If you wish to contact me about this podcast, please email me at sherdsmaa at aadl.org. That's S-J-O-E-R-D-S-M-A-A at A-A-D-L dot O-R-G. And please put Hitchcock somewhere in the subject line. Next, episode 27, Help Wanted, starring John Quaylen and Lorne Green. Now back to Hitch to wrap things up or rather back to me, reading Hitch, to wrap things up. I think the committee deserves a vote of confidence for its efforts on our behalf. Unfortunately, time does not permit. I declare the meeting adjourned until next week.